Well, let's return to John's prologue, John chapter 1. As you're turning, let me just remind you, again, as Brother Joseph mentioned, Brother Alfred Ajawader and his family are going to be returning to Ghana next month. And again, if you would like to help contribute to uh, the expenses that are coming in for them, for airfare and uh, shipping and getting all their belongings back to Ghana, you're more than welcome to um, drop some money in the offering plate for that. And of course, we are going to be voting to bring them on for missionary support uh, this coming Wednesday. But if you would like to go over and above that and add anything to the offering, you're more than welcome to do so. C.S. Lewis remarked, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Now, John has already told us the Logos was in the beginning with God, and the Logos was God or is God. And now in verse 14, John writes these revolutionary words, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Lord willing, we are going to pick up the pace of our exposition next week. But we dare not move too swiftly over this magnificently important statement. Last week, we pursued two backstories flowing into this verse. And today, what I want to do is pursue two truths of the Incarnation. And frankly, we could multiply that to 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, but we'll leave it with two this morning. But before we do that, let's just note the grammar. The eternal Word did not merely appear in human flesh or adopt a temporary body. That actually is a heresy called Gnosticism. John says the Word became flesh. Further, the words translated dwelt among us, translate a Greek word meaning to pitch his tabernacle, to set up the tabernacle as Moses did in the wilderness. And the corresponding Hebrew term and cognates refer to God dwelling with Israel in the tabernacle. God's Shekinah glory, to use the word that the rabbinic tradition used, God's Shekinah glory came to rest in the tabernacle. His presence, the glory of His presence was found in the tabernacle. When that bright cloud of God's presence as we looked at last week, just descended in the wilderness. It was, in fact, the very glory of God that filled the Holy of Holies and just gleamed through all of its seams. In the Old Testament, the ultimate manifestation of God's presence was the Holy of Holies, 
Psalm 22 and verse 9 relates, In His temple all cry glory. God's presence and God's glory can be used synonymously as we discovered last week. So when John says that Jesus is the incarnation in that we have seen His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, we are in fact gazing on that Shekinah glory of God that descended into the Holy of Holies. In the Greek text of Acts 7, Luke says of Stephen, moments before his martyrdom, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God, even Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The glory of God, Jesus. To see Jesus is to gaze on the very presence of God. Now notice the verse, notice the notice at the end of verse 14, the glory or the presence is full of grace and truth. When Moses begged God, just show me your glory, Yahweh responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God's goodness is fullness of grace. Jesus just introduced to us tidal waves of God's superbounding goodness, His grace into a fallen creation. And Jesus' presence was equally, look at the text, full of truth. Every word that Jesus spoke was the unbreakable word of God. In Jesus, God does not deprive us of the knowledge of reconciliation that we so desperately need. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is bountiful, it is plenteous, it is overwhelming, it is inexhaustible. That's what he's saying here. And that leads to the first of two truths that I want to explore this morning. Here it is, the Incarnation is the ultimate revelation of God. The ultimate revelation of God. When John describes Jesus as full of truth, he is gesturing in that direction. Now, if you'll turn to Exodus 33, and eventually to Hebrews 1, I want to show you this first truth. In the Incarnation... Jesus was not merely one more means of revelation. Jesus is not merely a new mode of revelation. The incarnation is, in fact, definitive. It's sublime. It's ultimate. It's insurpassable. Exodus 32 describes the wretched behavior of the Israelites in worshiping a golden calf. And God, justifiably, was angry with His people. And thousands died by plague and by sword in Exodus 32 because of their rebellion. But now in Exodus 33, 
God tells Moses and the people to just go on up now to the promised land. However, God also communicates that his relationship with his people has been compromised by their sin. Notice the wording of verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Wonderful news. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Friends, God knows that if He comes close to His people, His glorious presence would just utterly consume them. He cannot come close to them. Now, this is the context in which Moses asked to see God's glory. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God's response to him in verses 19 and 20 is intriguing. And he said, I will make all my goodness, the goodness and the glory related there, all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Now Moses had not participated in the idolatrous worship of the golden calf. Nevertheless, even Moses could not look directly into the face of God. Were he to do so, his atoms would just dissolve into smithereens. He'd be gone. God's presence would ultimately just consume him. So God devises a scheme whereby Moses can catch just a very brief glimpse of himself. Verse 21 and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you, can, where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, this dramatic scene illustrates the principle that we developed last week. God and man cannot occupy the same space. You just you can't get them together. When God's glory later went into the tabernacle, Exodus 40, Moses, as you recall, had to leave. When God's glory went into the temple, Solomon had to leave. Man cannot stand face to face with God. Spatial imagery communicates moral distance. God speaks from afar. God thunders off the roof of Sinai. His presence gleams behind a temple veil. He shrouds himself behind a cloud. God reveals himself in fragmentary ways. Man cannot survive 
the full revelation of God and all his glory. The Old Testament just keeps on telling us that. However, suddenly in the New Testament, we find ourselves staring into the face of a man. And John's gospel tells us we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Friends, that is really astonishing against the backdrop of the Old Testament. In fact, it almost sounds contradictory. How is this even possible? I think sometimes we are very hasty to condemn the Jews for not embracing the deity of Jesus. But I wonder, had you been reading the Old Testament very carefully, and you knew that Moses himself could not even catch a glimpse of the face of God, would you truly believe that anyone could see His glory? Glory is of the only Son from the Father. I mean, how is this possible? Everything in the Old Testament tells us this isn't going to happen. I wonder sometimes if we are just so familiar with the Incarnation that we no longer understand it. We are gazing into the face of God. In the Old Testament, God put a perimeter around the base of Mount Sinai and anyone who so much as transgressed that perimeter had to be killed. When Uzzah reached out his hand and stabilized the ark as it lurched on the cart, he was struck dead. So how on earth can we look into the face of God and live? Friends, even the disciples were doubtful. We will eventually come to John chapter 14, and there we will learn of Philip's confusion. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus' response indicates that Philip has not fully embraced the reality of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, we might be tempted to say, Philip, how did you not understand that? Probably he was reading the Old Testament. God is no longer, though, hidden behind a veil. And Philip is not pressed into the cleft of a rock with God's hand over his face. And Jesus says, you've seen the Father. Somehow, God has found a way to make His glory known without utterly consuming us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Now, just to be certain that Jesus is the full and complete revelation of God, let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. And let's observe how the author identifies Jesus. The author is going to contrast the revelation of God in the Old Testament with a magnificent revelation of God in the New, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. 
The author writes in verse 1, Hebrews 1 and verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament. God communicated through prophets, dreams, visions, Urim and Thummim, heavenly speech, a voice from a burning bush, and even through a donkey. God spoke to us in many ways. However, the first word of verse 2 contrasts all those communication mediums with what we have recently heard. But, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, which is exactly what John 1 told us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He holds the universe by the word of His power. After making, after making purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. What is the author saying? The author is saying that God has spoken to us directly through His Son in recent days. And who is that? Well, the very man who was resurrected with authority over all nations. Jesus claimed at the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He claimed that as He resurrected And here he is called the one who is appointed heir of all things. So this is none other than Jesus Christ. But look very carefully at the words of verse 3. Really critical words. The exact imprint of his nature. I love the way the ESV puts that. During the third century, the Arian heresy threatened to destroy the church. It was eventually condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Arius claimed that Jesus was homoousia with the Father. The term homoousia meant of a similar substance. Jesus was similar to God. According to Arius, Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. Rather, God created Jesus as an exalted being, very similar to God, and Jesus in turn created the world. But Athanasius of Alexandria led an orthodox counteroffensive against Arius. And Athanasius asserted that correctly, that Jesus is homo, not homoi, homo, usias with the Father. Homoousios means of the same substance. Jesus was identical with the Father with respect to all of His divine attributes. Whatever God is, Jesus is. Homoousios versus homoousios. Jesus, friends, verse 3, is the exact imprint of God's nature, not similar to the exact imprint of God's nature. And look at verse 3. It also tells us that Jesus radiates 
the same glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Friends, of God the Father walk the earth, he would look just like Jesus. Now, they are not one and the same person. That's another heresy called modalism or sabellianism. They are distinct persons. Nevertheless, they share in the same nature of God. They are one and the same in their divine essence or substance. They equally partake in the nature of God. So, friends, the incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's presence, of God's glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What kind of glory? Glory is of the only Son from the Father. So that is our first truth. The incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of of God's presence. And for a second truth now, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I have never preached through Genesis 1, but it is amazing how often we have to go back to Genesis 1 to understand so much of the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 and verse 1 we come across a truth that is so glorious that it really needs to be repeated and probably repeated often. Would you just note how the Old Testament and the New Testaments begin with similar images? Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word translated hovering over conveys a motherly image. It can be translated to brood over, like a mother bird. Have you ever observed a very pregnant woman contemplating her womb? Watch her hands just gently caress that incubation chamber in a very delicate embrace. Sister Feng Zhao was here at Soccer Fest yesterday, and I was just noticing that she just, she has that very motherly look to her. She's not here today. I, she's, she's, she's due today, I think. So pray for Sister Feng Zhao. All right. But that, that's the image. That's the image that we have here. And isn't that the very same image that the New Testament begins with? You have the Holy Spirit just hovering over this dark sphere of water containing the unformed substance of the new creation, of the, of the, of the coming creation. And the New Testament, that same Holy Spirit comes and he hovers over a sphere of water, that maternal sea sheltering the seed of a whole new creation. Just listen to how Luke's account of the virgin birth reads. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you like a bird just casting its shadow over Mary's womb. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now we know from additional New Testament revelation that Jesus is merely the first fruits of the whole new creation. A creation that is completely restored through his resurrection. The new creation then quite literally began in Mary's womb. The new creation is not something that begins in the future. It began with the virginal conception. And we know that because the same body that broke through that sphere of water and was pressed into the world through the virgin birth, through that virgin womb, is the same body that emerged from the virgin tomb. And that body is the beginning of the whole new creation. There really is a very interesting parallel, is there not, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old creation and the new creation. Now, would you consider this also? The original creation, in that creation, God called forth light out of that dark sphere of water. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But listen now to how Matthew, citing Isaiah, describes the coming of Jesus into creation. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The light of the old creation, the light of the new creation has come. And now look down at verses 26 and 27. This is actually one of the most enigmatic passages in all the Old Testament. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, friends, what precisely does it mean to be made in the image of God? Do you think that Moses himself who wrote Genesis, even understood what those words mean when he himself could not look onto the face of God. Certainly, the image includes exercising dominion over the earth because that's right here in our text. But the Bible, I think, deliberately does not define the image of God with precision at this point. Because we need to work through a great deal more revelation before we can really begin to comprehend it. When you work through the remainder of the Old Testament, the passage actually becomes increasingly enigmatic. God is up there on Mount Sinai, hidden behind a cloud, and no one can come near. Well, wait a minute, I thought I was made in His image. I can't even look on Him. God and man cannot occupy the same space. Well, then how can I bear his image? What is this even supposed to look like? However, if you read through all four Gospels, 
and partway, I mean, all the way through Acts, and partway through Romans, you will at long last find a passage that actually clarifies what the image of God looks like. You don't have to turn there. I'll give you the reference. It's Romans 8 and verse 29. Here's what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image. There it is again. At long last, there's the image again. The image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In the garden, before the fall, we were supposed to perfectly reflect the image of God. But, of course, man fell into great sin and misery. But in the new creation, that image is completely restored. But what does it look like? Exactly like Jesus. Conformity to the image of the Son. That's God's ideal for His image bearers. Jesus is the example of what a perfect human being made in the image and likeness of God, looks like. Adam failed to properly bear that image. We, friends, need a new example. So go back then and read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John. That tells you what the image of God is supposed to look like in a human being. That's your perfect example. The incarnation then restores the image of God in man. Now, let me deal with a related question. Here's the question. Does the restored image of God include our bodies? Well, let's recall that the incarnation of God brings together two great doctrines, the virginal conception and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Those two together form the doctrine of the incarnation. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he explained that Jesus Christ had a body that literally could not suffer corruption. Quoting David, Peter said, Acts 2 and verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, to the grave. And listen to this, nor did his flesh see corruption. His flesh did not even begin to rot away. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. It was actually impossible for Jesus' flesh to waste away in the grave. And recall that Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 23 that our bodies are going to be redeemed. He refers to the redemption of our bodies through the gospel. So yes, the resurrection does indeed include our bodies, because the resurrection included the body of Jesus Christ. Well then, another question, what is the nature of the resurrected body? And let's turn to two more passages. Lots of passages this morning. Let's turn first to 1 Corinthians 15. 
And this passage is the most extensive exploration of the resurrection in the Bible. And we did cross-reference with this passage once before that I'm aware of in the time that I've been here. And that was when we were in Romans chapter 8. But I do think it's worth investigating again. Because there's a lot of error on this point. A lot of misunderstanding on this point. What does a resurrection body look like? When we're restored into the image of Christ, what will that look like? In this passage, Paul distinguishes two kinds of bodies. And the language he uses has often tripped people up theologically. Paul refers to a natural body and a spiritual body. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, if you read that text through the lens of Gnosticism, you're going to come out quite wrong. And and many people actually go wrong on the resurrection body. The Gnostic interpretation says the natural body is the physical body that must go away permanently. The spiritual body is a kind of immaterial spirit fit for an immaterial world, not a created material world. We leave our physical bodies behind like ghosts, never to be reunited. But observe the word body. Spirits do not have bodies. Paul does not contrast embodiment with disembodiment. It's not what he's saying. It's not embodiment versus disembodiment. Rather, he is contrasting two different kinds of embodiment. There's two ways to be embodied. That's what he's saying. And with that distinction in place, let's get a bit more of the context. Begin with verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And that's the very question we're trying to answer. But again, the question is not embodiment versus disembodiment. Here's the question, with what kind of body do they come? You will be raised in a body. The question is, what kind of body? So verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Now that sounds very similar to what Jesus said during the final week when he came into Jerusalem on his donkey. Greeks came seeking Jesus, and days before his crucifixion, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, we know that Jesus' humanity was crucified, and his dead humanity was placed alone in the earth. But when it suddenly sprung to life again, it began bearing much fruit or much seed. Whoever loses his life with Jesus is brought back to life again. 
with Jesus. That's what he was referring to. And so Paul seems to have those very words of Jesus in mind when he writes verses 36 and 37. When we think about our resurrection, you have to think about Jesus' resurrection. Christians have been burned ashes. They've been buried at sea. They have been dissolved in the dust. Believers are sown into the earth like a bare kernel of seed or grain. But is that the end? No, verse 36, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Of course, that's not the end. In the 14th century, the Council of Constance condemned the great English Bible translator and reformer John Wycliffe after he died. The church exhumed his bones, burned them, and cast them into the River Swift, which flowed right through Wycliffe's little village of Lutterworth. A later chronicler wrote of Wycliffe's ashes, Thus the brook that conveyed his ashes into the Avon, Avon into the Severn, Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. A grain of wheat falls into the ground and bears much fruit. What finally becomes of Wycliffe's ashes? Those bodily remains dissolved into the waters. What is sown in death springs to life. And what does that look like? Well, again, the language of this passage points us right back to Jesus in Jerusalem. What did Jesus look like after Jesus was planted into the earth like a dying grain of wheat. Well, Peter is going to be our witness. So hold on to that question. It really is the key to putting everything together. For now, continue with Paul. I said Peter, I meant to say Luke. But for now, continue with Paul. Paul continues in verses 38 through 40 to describe the great variety of bodies that are in creation. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Now, that's a lot to work through, but really, here's the main point. There are numerous kinds of bodies out there in creation. However, all creation is embodied. Different kinds of bodies, yes. Animals have bodies, birds have bodies, fish have bodies, the earth, moon, and stars have bodies. But all of these things are embodied. The creation is embodied. Now, from that analogy of different kinds of bodies, Paul is going to develop a line of thought. There was a new kind of body coming. Not a disembodied body, but a glorious body that Paul calls a spiritual body. Look at the text, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, is, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, and again, that's a lot to work through. We will not do that at this point, but here is the main point. There was an old dying body that we inherited from Adam. And Paul describes it as perishable, as dishonorable, as weak. It is dust returning to dust. Paul calls that the natural body. That's the body you live in right now. But Paul also says there was a spiritual body given to the second Adam, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. The second man came from heaven, and he came like a grain of seed planted into the earth, and he died, but he was resurrected. And in the resurrection, we do not come back in Adam, the man of dust. Here's how we come back. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, that's what you're doing right now. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what a spiritual body looks like in the resurrection. Exactly like the man of heaven resurrected from the dead. And there again is the image. So what exactly then did Jesus' resurrection body look like? Let's turn to one final passage, Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 finally is going to make sense of everything. Did Jesus come back in a genuinely human, material, created, physical body in his resurrection? Or should we just take the Gnostic position? Just leave the physical world behind. We'll all become spirits. We'll all become ghosts. Well, look at verse 36. Jesus appeared suddenly to his disciples after his death. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. And how did they respond? Verse 37, And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. So if Gnosticism is true, we should expect the disciples' initial response is correct. Jesus is just now a spirit, no physical body. But keep reading. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Friends, that is not Gnosticism. It's just flesh and and bones. Did you really read those words? Flesh and bones. Jesus clearly says, I am no ghost. I am flesh and bones. And why is he so intent on showing them his hands, his side, 
Well, John's gospel tells us you could literally see the scars. Scars. You must be embodied if you're going to bear the scars. This was the same body that was wounded on the cross, now restored. And just to make sure, verse 41, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Ever seen a ghost eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. There was no doubt Jesus swallowed food. This is no ghost. He is embodied. And this is what Peter and the other disciples witnessed when they saw the resurrection. So bring it all back now to our second truth. The incarnation restores the image of God in man. And that image includes our bodies. So friends, do we really have a greater appreciation for the truth of John 1 and verse 14? The Word became flesh. He did not merely appear in the flesh. He became flesh. He became embodied. The incarnation is the ultimate revelation of God. And Jesus restores the image of God in man. If I can say that just a little bit differently, Jesus, friends, is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And Jesus is perfect humanity, true God and true man. The incarnation is the fulcrum point, then, of the Bible. The incarnation is the hinge between the old and new covenants, the old and new creations, The incarnation is the location where heaven and earth are rejoined. The incarnation is the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. And the incarnation is the place where we are permanently and indissolubly united with God. God and humanity meet in Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his glorious incarnation. And I pray, Lord, today for anyone here who may not have yet, as yet, have embraced this wonderful truth, that they might meet you today in the person of Christ. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.